0: Well, two days ago, I turned 49. When I woke up on Friday, Kelly asked me if I was feeling older and wiser, and I said, no, I'm feeling fatter and sorer. (laughs) It probably didn't help that I was out playing gym hockey on Wednesday night like I was a junior hire, and I paid for it (laughs) the rest of the week, but we had a lot of fun. But as I look back over the past 49 years, it's hard to believe, but aside from eating and sleeping and brushing my teeth and taking a shower along with a bunch of other normal everyday activities, there's only one thing that I can think of that's remained constant amid all the changes that have occurred over the course of my lifetime. From kindergarten through seminary, from single to being married. From having no kids to having three kids, from being a youth intern to a senior pastor, from living and ministering in the Northeast to the West Coast, from the Northwest to now the Southwest, and having the privilege of traveling and and preaching on five of the seven continents, apart from vacations and a few times when I was sick, I've been at church every Sunday of my entire life. There's never been another place that I'd rather be. I've literally been going to church ever since I was born. And ever since I sensed God's call to full-time vocational ministry when I was in high school, my life has revolved around the church. Now, I don't say any of that to impress you. None of that makes me any more spiritual than anyone else, but it does make me grateful for God's grace in my life. Because despite all that I've experienced in relation to the church over all these years, I've yet to become bored with church or burned out on church. And not everybody can say that. It was recently told me about a former young person who attended our church uh, for many years, growing up here, and had made a comment to someone else that "You know what i just I just got bored with church, and so I just moved on, and to my knowledge, that young person is no longer going to any church. Kelly and I bumped into uh, someone who attended our church years ago and recently and You know, it's always that awkward moment when you meet the pastor at Starbucks and you're like, oh no, and you feel awkward and like, oh man, he's going to ask me where I've been and I got to, so they didn't even let me ask, they just got right into it. They just came out and said, hey, you know, I I haven't been coming and, 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 and I'll never forget what this person said. And they had come maybe for a year and a half or so and it was after a crisis in their life that really drew them. Uh, to the church and we were so blessed to minister to them during this crisis but now that the crisis is long past this is what they said quote there was just nothing there for me and then they said this I didn't relate to anyone and of course my first thought was that's a pretty revealing statement when you say there's nothing at church for me and I don't relate to anyone. What is your first thought? That maybe they were never a Christian to begin with. That's not just my opinion. Um, Donald Whitney, in his classic book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, shares that conviction. He said this, quote, people who aren't interested in going to church may have that attitude precisely because they're not Christians. And then he quotes 1 John 2.19 where it says they went out from us because they were never, what? One of us. And so Whitney says that maybe they're not a Christian. But then he goes on and balances out. He says, going to church does not make you a Christian. There are many in hell who went to church all their lives. Regular church attendance is meaningless without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. So none of us should sit here smugly and self-righteously and say, well, I'm glad I'm not one of the pastor's illustrations this morning, somebody he met or heard about. I'm sitting here in church. Well, you could, just, you could be just as lost as those people that I met out in the community. Just coming here doesn't make you a Christian. And it seems like more and more Christians today are admitting that they're bored with church, or they're burned out on church, or maybe more accurately, they've been burned by the church. That's probably what you hear more than anything. It's not uncommon to hear a professing Christian share how they're looking for a new church, or they're taking a break from church, or... They'll never go back to church ever again as a result of being judged or slandered or ignored or overlooked or overworked or underappreciated or bullied or abused by a church. Now admittedly, there has been a lot of wrong done in the name of Christ and the church throughout its history, either by those claiming to be Christians who weren't truly saved or by Christians who were not following God's word. I mean, when you consider things like the medieval crusades, or the Inquisition, or the conflicts in more recent years between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, and uh, Northern Ireland, they're just killing one another, and, and uh, the sex abuse scandals in both the Catholic and Protestant churches alike, not to mention the legalism and the hypocrisy that, that is always rife within the church. It seems like the church has done more harm than good, and that maybe we'd be better off without it. I mean, there are those who claim that their experience in church messed them up royally. And now they're going it alone, just them and Jesus, and maybe a group of other wounded souls they've met in some online community where they spend an inordinate amount of time commiserating together and bashing their former churches. Others choose to stay in their churches, but they're... Checked out in their minds and in their hearts, they're just going through the motions. I mean, this might describe someone in here this morning. That you're here this morning, but you're not really here. Or maybe you're just physically and spiritually exhausted. When you just feel spent from serving the Lord, Um, you, you just need a break. Well, all this begs the question, why bother with church? can I just read my Bible and pray and be good um, to go? Come on, I, I read my Bible, I, I'm good to go in my Christian life. I, I mean, is going to church really necessary? I mean, honestly, I feel closer to God when I'm all by myself, sipping my coffee on my back patio or fishing out on the lake. Have you heard that before? I came across another very helpful little book, little, I like these little books, just like that other one I was reading from last week, How to Walk into the Church. This one's called, Why Bother with Church? And other questions about why you need it and why it needs you. It's a good title. Why Bother with Church? And other questions about why you need it and why it needs you. Let me read for you just a, a brief quote, quote by the author, Sam Alberry, who's a pastor in the Church of England in um, the UK. He says this, quote, there are so many reasons why we might not bother with church. Church is an effort. It's sometimes hard. So why bother going at all? Why bother making it a priority in your week every week? Why bother getting stuck in when it means putting yourself out? Maybe you're someone who goes along dutifully to church week by week, but you've never been completely sure why. Maybe you're stuck in and serving hard, but wondering if it's all worth the effort. Maybe you're someone whose commitment to church has been waning for a while now. Or maybe you're new to church and you want to know what is it that you're getting into. And then he says this, when we get what the church is and whose the church is, We really won't want to go anywhere else on Sunday morning. We will gather on Sunday, look around and look at ourselves and be absolutely amazed at who we are before him. We will hear about what he is in his word and sing about who he is in our hymns and be completely awestruck that we get to be a part of it and to be part of the way God builds it. He said, if you remember this, when you get up next Sunday, you'll find yourself asking why on earth would I not bother with church? Did you look around this morning and go, wow, I can't believe that I get to be a part of this. We're so blessed, we're so privileged to be part of the the church of Jesus Christ. And so whether you've grown up in church like Me, or you've just started coming to church, we all need to realize and be reminded that attending church is not an optional activity, but an absolute necessity. Church doesn't just serve a supplemental role in our lives as Christians. It plays an essential, even crucial role. Consequently, church shouldn't have just a peripheral place In our lives, it must have a central place in our lives. Church needs to be a non-negotiable part of our lives around which we plan everything else. Nothing should be more exciting or more pressing than coming to church. And so as we continue this morning in our series on why we come to church, I want to consider a very familiar text with you in the book of Hebrews that emphasizes why it's so important for us as Christians to come to church. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Very familiar verses, I'm sure, to most of you. The writer of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now based on what those two verses say, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one. Is it possible to be a Christian and not come to church? Don't answer out loud. You might embarrass yourself. It's not a trick question, but think about that. Is it possible to be a Christian and not come to church? I'll put myself out there and say, yes, I think it's possible to be a Christian and not come to church, but not a very good one. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian any more than you have to go home to be married. But if you want to have a good relationship with your spouse, you'll go home every day. Don't you think that would help? And in the same way, if you want a good relationship with Jesus Christ, you'll go to his church every week. Particularly in light of the fact that you are likened to his, what? Bride. His spouse. Church is likened to a marriage. Christ is our husband. We are the wife, if you will. So it's possible to be a Christian and not come to church. Let me ask you a second question. Is it it a sin not to come to church? Is it a sin not to come to church? Again, don't answer out loud. You might embarrass yourself. That's kind of a hard question. Let Let me expand that question. Is it a sin... Not to come to church on a regular basis. How's that? A little easier question? Because we know there's times when we miss church for legitimate reasons. We, we get sick or um, we go out of town or you know, we're on vacation or we have whatever comes up, right? And so we all miss church occasionally. But the point is, is it a sin to not to come to church on a regular, consistent basis? Again, I would say the answer to that question is yes. Why? Because this is not a suggestion, but a command. It says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. As we're going to see, there were some who had stopped going to church. And the writer of Hebrews was confronting them about that. And so the most basic answer to the question why do we come to church is simply because God commands us to. I don't know if you thought of that a few weeks ago when I said, hey, why did you come to church today? Well, that's the easiest answer is God commands us to. You say, well, where does he command us to do that? I, don't, I didn't know God commanded us to come to church. Well, right there, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. God clearly requires all those that he has called out of this world as his own to gather together on a regular basis for the purpose of providing encouragement to one another. And so we come to church not, not merely out of dutiful obedience. Well, I'm here because I have to be here. I'm commanded to be here, and this is just obedient. I'm just obeying the Lord, just, just, just doing what he told me to do. No, we come to church not merely out of dutiful obedience, to God's command, but so we can consistently and intentionally interact with other believers in order to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. We have a responsibility to one another. I have a responsibility to you, you have a responsibility to me, we have a responsibility to each other. Now let's consider the context in which these verses were first given. We don't know for sure who wrote this letter, but we do know that the overall point of this letter was to show the superiority of Christ over Judaism. And it's titled, Hebrews obviously written to Jews who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, but were thinking of reverting back to their old religious system in order to avoid being persecuted and imprisoned or ostracized by their fellow Jews. And so the writer says, hey guys, listen, Jesus is way better than Judaism. Why would you ever go back? And specifically here in chapter 10, the writer was exhorting those who had either stopped attending their local church or were considering not attending anymore and and returning to the Jewish synagogue so they wouldn't experience ill treatment. He, He was exhorting them to apply the blessings that had been provided for them by Christ's high priestly work on their behalf. Notice the context here, the immediate context, verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and so we have this this background here of, of what Christ has accomplished for us through his death, that he's made a way... For us to enter through the veil into the Holy of Holies, as it were. Very Judaistic way of thinking, right? In the temple, there was a Holy of Holies, and the only person that could ever go in there was the high priest and once a year. But now when Jesus came and he died on the cross, that temple was torn in, in half, right? Symbolizing that we have, now, now we have access to God through the blood of Jesus. And because of that, (coughs) he goes on in these next few verses to give three exhortations. Notice verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the first exhortation, to draw near with a sincere heart. In other words, sincerely enter into God's presence. Fully assured, based on your faith in him, and having purified your hearts. So come and worship, draw near to this great God who we have access to now because of our great high priest. So let us draw near with a sincere heart. That's the first exhortation. The second one is verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The second exhortation is that we would hold fast the confession of our hope, that we we would remember all the promises that God has made to us in his word and know that he is faithful to keep his promises. And so that gives us hope. as we live out our Christian life. And then notice the third exhortation is verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this could have been a three-part sermon here. Really, our three responsibilities, our three privileges, right, to... That when we enter the house of God, when we come to church, that we are to draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. In other words, you come ready to worship. We come with uh, strong faith. We come with uh, unrelenting hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We come to sing and, and remind ourselves of the promises of God. And so, by the way, those first two exhortations really are focused upward. Those are more in relationship to, to God and how we interact with God. And I said last week that whenever you come to church, you have to think on a vertical level and a an horizontal level, because there's two things going on simultaneously. We're here to, to worship God, to exalt God, but we're also here to encourage one another, We need to be looking vertically and horizontally, thinking vertically, thinking horizontally. And so those first two exhortations are more the vertical perspective. But don't forget, not only are you entering the presence of a holy God, but you can come with great faith and with great hope based on his promises. But also, as you're worshiping God, you also need to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So... We just can't come and say, I just want to have this personal experience with God and just let's turn the lights off and forget about it, that there, there's anyone else in here. That's not, that's not biblical church. That's only half the equation. Nor should we just come here and say, hey, let's just love on each other. Let's have a love fest and you know we're just loving each other. And, and, and well, wait a minute, what about worshiping God? What about singing songs and listening to his word? There's, there needs to be a balance here. And then notice just what comes immediately after. This is interesting. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's one of those passages when you get done, you should be going. That, that's a that's a terrifying passage. What was he doing there in those verses? He was warning them of the eternal consequences of forsaking the assembling of themselves together and ultimately forsaking Christ. Because typically, when you forsake Christ's church, you end up forsaking what? Christ. And so those who abandon Christ are left without any sacrifice for their sins. They should expect to be judged for turning away from the only solution for their sin, the death of Jesus Christ. But when we consider what Christ has accomplished for us through his sacrificial death on the cross, it should stir us to faith, love, or faith, I should say, hope, and love. Do you see the familiar triad there in verses 22, 23, and 24, there's the assurance of faith. There's the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love. But with that background in mind, let's just zero in on this third exhortation regarding love. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this text, said this quote, Love is a product of community activity. For it is a virtue that requires others for its exercise. One may practice faith or hope alone, but not love. Interesting. You can have faith and you can have hope. Just you and just you and God. It's all you need. But you cannot have love alone. You need someone, something, to express that love to. In other words, you can't obey the command in our text here if you're not regularly meeting together with other believers. Now, I have to be honest with you. I said that we're commanded to not forsake our own assembling together, but that's really not a command. The command, there's only one command uh, in verses 24 and 25. What is it? You take a guess. Let us, what? Consider... How to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the command. That's what we must obey. We must consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then you have that command, however, followed up by a what's called a participle in the Greek language. How do you do that practically? Okay, so if I'm supposed to obey this command, if I'm going to put this into practice and I'm going to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, how am i going to do that? Well, practically, you don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. In other words, you can't obey this command unless you're spending time together. You see? And what else? Another participle, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if we're to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, it requires two things, that we don't forsake meeting together and that when we do get together, we encourage one another. So this is just one of a number of passages in the New Testament that, that make it crystal clear that our spiritual growth and development occurs within the context of the church. Chris just read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, God's desire is that we all grow to become like Jesus, to become like Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, we're not going to be weak and, and uh, gullible and able to be tricked and led astray, but uh, blown and tossed by every new doctrine or movement that comes down the road. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head of Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the, not say the individual, but growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The point is, we cannot grow and mature in Christ without being vitally connected with the other members of the body of Christ. This is the good news. You ready for the good news here? God never expected us to have to live the Christian life on our own. Aren't you glad? That you're not out there being the Lone Ranger, solo mission Christian. He assumed that we would live the Christian life with the help and support of other Christians. And that's why he didn't just save you, that's why he didn't just save me. He saved you and me and you 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 and guess why? So we can be sitting here in a local church on a Sunday morning considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another. Listen, the moment we get saved, we are automatically connected to the church, and immediately we become a part of Christ's body. In other words, when you come to Christ, you come to the church. You can't have one without the other. They're, they're one and the same. You might remember when Jesus confronted Paul, or Saul at the time, on the road to Damascus. He was going to persecute what? The church. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, and he... And he, he uh, Knocked him off his horse with this bright light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he said? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus, he was persecuting the church. But in Jesus' mind, you persecute the church, you persecute me. One and the same based on the pattern set by the early church as soon as a person got saved they they immediately were baptized which was the way to publicly identify with Christ and they began attending a local church that's just what they did in the in the first century Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, in this little book, Why Bother with Church, Alberry, the author, says this, quote, as Christians, we are united to Christ, and being united to Jesus means we're united to everyone else who is united to Jesus. Jesus. A Christian, by definition, has a connection with and a responsibility to other Christians. You cannot claim Christ and avoid his people. That'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it be? Like, I'll be a Christian, but I just don't want to deal with the mess of getting to know other Christians. Because it usually creates problems and difficulties, and and I get hurt, and I get offended, and I offend them, and I don't mean to. We get sideways with one another and cross-fitted. And, you you know, Christianity would be so much easier if it was just me and Jesus. You ever felt that way? Well, I'm sorry, it's a package deal. If you want Christ, you also have his church. Alberry goes on to say, he says, neglecting the church is neglecting Jesus. You're not just neglecting the church. You say, I'm not going to church today. You're not just neglecting church, you're neglecting Christ. I think this is so crucial for us to to, to grasp, particularly for those of us who live in the internet age that that in many ways has made going to church seem sort of passe, kind of irrelevant. It's kind of unnecessary now, you think about it. Except for you guys who are playing Pokemon Go right now. Because you know this is an arena right here. Apparently, it's my son said, that our, the gym here at Lakeside is an arena. So look at everybody's looking at their phone now. Really? Where's Pikachu? I want to find him. I mean, seriously. I mean, we are so like off the charts with our technology these days, aren't we? I mean, people are dying playing games on their phone. But we live in this age of websites and podcasts and Facebook and Twitter accounts, and listen, they're all great ways to communicate information and help people get a feel for, for a church and or stay connected with a church, and uh, a lot of people will say, hey, we, we got to know you on your website, and there's a lot of good information, thank you, and, and so those are effective, and it really, when people are sick or out of town, and to be able to watch the service now that we have live stream or listen to it on the, on the internet. So these are all good things. Unfortunately, all these technological advances have made it possible for people to attend church online and never have to attend or enter the doors of a real actual church in their local area. I mean, have you ever thought about this? That you can listen to way better preachers than me. Anytime you want. Tyler, why are you shaking your head? You can listen to way better preachers than me. Chris, no offense, but we can, uh, we can download music that's way better than the music we got here. You can do that online. So why bother getting dressed and going to church down the street when neither the preaching or the singing will be near as good as what I can get online? Plus, I get to stay in my PJs all day. I'll tell you why. Because you're not personally interacting with the body of Christ. There's not this right here. You can't get this online. Again, Alberry says this, quote, the point of preaching and worship is that there are corporate activities and therein lies the heart of what a church skipping believer misses out on. It's God's people. You can get God's word online. You can get Some great music online, but you don't get God's people. And so with that being said, let's go back to our text here. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That word consider, it means to place the mind down upon, to be thoughtful, to be intentional, to be deliberate, to give some forethought to. Is that something you're in the habit of doing, that you're thinking ahead as you're coming to church? About maybe someone in our church that you know could use some encouragement? Maybe someone that uh, you've developed a relationship with and you know they're going through a hard time and, and you know, it's just, it, this, they, man, they, they need to be encouraged right now. And so you gave some forethought today. You prayed about, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to talk to that person? And, and Lord, I'd like to, maybe there's a verse that I want to share with that person that's been an encouragement to me and, or maybe I just want to pull them aside and just pray for them, pray with them. Um, to this morning to give some forethought like what about being proactive thinking ahead that's that's the idea here praying and planning how you can encourage someone how you can comfort someone how you can challenge a fellow believer and maybe that you know someone's slipping away spiritually maybe you haven't seen them for a while and 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 you happen to see them and you've been praying for them and so you make a beeline to them after the service is over and say hey, i haven't seen you for a while is everything okay and even kind of holding their feet to the fire a little bit about, hey, where, where, what's, what's been going on? You've been missing church a whole lot. Guess what? You're doing, you're, you're applying this verse, you're, you're fulfilling this, campaign. you're obeying this command. Consider how to stimulate one another's love, love and good. That's stimulating. You're sharpening that person. And there may be even some sparks that fly, right? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens Another. So we need to come to church thinking ahead, praying, planning about people who may need to be encouraged. Or maybe you don't and say, Lord, would you just, maybe it's just simple, Lord, would you use me today to be an encouragement to the people that interact? With? Would, you, would you orchestrate providentially divine appointments today? As I'm in the foyer, as I'm in the hallway, as I'm in the bathroom, as I'm in the parking lot, who I sit next to. Because everyone I'm interacting with today needs encouragement. And I want to provide that for them. And so we need to, it says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How to stir someone up. The the idea here is stirring them up, inspiring them, motivating them. And, And we do that several ways. We can do it by our words. Something that we say can inspire someone, can motivate someone, can stir them up, spur them on. We can do it by our example. Maybe you're going through a difficult time and everyone knows it. You just got diagnosed with something or you just lost someone or, 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 or whatever and, and people are looking at your example and they're, they're watching how you respond in such a godly way. There was a family just recently that their, their, their son was in a horrific situation car accident, hit by a drunk driver, shouldn't have walked away alive. And I just shared with them when I went and visited them in the hospital that the initial email that this mom sent out to the Grow Group was so godly, so biblical. And the way she was thinking in the midst of this, this trauma, her, her, that's when the, the theology kicked in. And she just wrote this, this, this uh, I thought, an amazing email of just a, just a biblical perspective, a godly perspective about the situation. And that was such an encouragement to me. And that was what? Through her words, through her example. Sometimes we can stimulate people through our prayers. I was personally stimulated this week and, 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 and motivated and inspired by, by a couple guys praying for me. Some guys I just went out to lunch with, just guys I meet with on a regular basis. How's it going? What's going on in your life? We Sharing kind of what's happening in our marriages, what's happening in our families, what's happening in our our jobs, our ministries, and and just to have these guys say, hey, can I I pray for you? Let me pray for you. I mean, I'm usually the guy that does that. Hey, let me pray for you. I'm the pastor. I get paid to pray. But these guys, they just just wanted to pray pray for me. Not, Not as their pastor, but just as their friend. And it was so encouraging. It was so stimulating. It was so comforting and encouraging through their prayers and again none of this is possible if we forsake assembling together none of that can happen if we're not here together literally when it says not forsaking our own assembly together literally it it means to not leave others in the lurch well that fits doesn't it this context so well. When we miss church, now obviously it's, listen, I'm not the, you know, you miss church next Sunday, I'm not going to be at your door going, hey, come on, man, check. You've been missing, we're not that kind of church, right? The point is, I'm talking about when you're like missing church for no good reason, okay? You're in a sense leaving your brothers and sisters hanging. You're leaving them in the lurch, and guess what? You're hanging yourself out to dry, too. Because guess what? You need the encouragement of others just as much they, as, as they need the encouragement of you. And what, what happens is we're, we're left, all of us are left unstimulated and discouraged, which hinders our walk with Christ and may sometimes causes us to backslide. Donald Whitney in... His book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, says this Neglect of church attendance is almost always one of the first outward signs of backsliding and one of the initial steps taken by those whose path ends in complete apostasy. Without the encouragement to persevere that is provided by the public worship of God, the preaching of the Word of God, and the fellowship of the people of God, there is a much greater tendency to drift spiritually. Of course, Church attendance is no automatic guarantee against spiritual setbacks. No Christian progresses in faith with perfect consistency. But without going to church, backsliding or worse is almost a certainty. And then he says this: In fact, based on Hebrews ten twenty-five, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together actually is backsliding. And then he says this final sentence: If you can miss church and not miss church, then something is absent from your heart and faith. I love when people come and say, oh man, I was, I've been sick for the last few weeks or whatever, or I've been you know, recovering from this surgery or man, I've been on a business trip and man, I, I, just, I just miss being here. That's a good sign that all is well with your soul when you, you miss church, but you missed church. Notice he says, not forsaking our own assembling together. Episunagog. What does that sound like? Synagogue. So this was the, the epi-synagogue. This was the church. It was different from the synagogue. What does this refer to? This is the, the regular gathering together of believers in a particular place here on earth for worship and for fellowship. The only other time this word is used in, is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. You tell me what this is referring to. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Episunegas, same word there. What is he referring to? He's referring to this one-time gathering of believers in the air. He's talking about when Jesus comes back and we're raptured, the church is raptured. And I appreciate how one commentator said this, That gathering, the the rapture, we're all looking to that one time Episunegos, when we get to go up and be with Jesus in heaven, that gathering is no more important, no more momentous, no more thrilling than the gathering together of believers for fellowship and exhortation here on earth. Both are of equal vital importance in God's plans for his people in a cold, hostile world. Anybody excited about the rapture? I hope you're excited about the rapture. And guess what? We should be equally excited about getting to come to church every Sunday. Because it's the same thing. It's the assembly. It's the gathering together of God's people. So we're not to forsake our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The one another is not there in the original. It's just, but encouraging. That's all it says. But encouraging. That's what we're to do. When we when we come together, we're to encourage one another. And so by not attending the corporate gathering of God's people, what we're essentially saying is, you know what? I don't care whether or not you're encouraged. <laughs> Makes no difference to me whether you're encouraged or not. And it's also saying, you know what? I don't need your encouragement. I'm good. I'm good. I can kind of make it on my own. I don't need your encouragement. Bruce Milne has a great little theology book called Know the Truth. And he says this, the Christian life is inescapably corporate. He said the ideal of the omnicompetent Christian individual, able to meet every spiritual challenge and live a life of unbroken victory over sin and the devil... Has driven many to a lonely struggle, ending in despair and disillusionment, or worse, in the hypocrisy of a double standard life. Any of those omni competent Christian individuals, key word there, think you're good on your own? You don't need any help? You can meet every spiritual challenge on your own? It's just the other people that struggle. I don't struggle. It's it's everybody else who struggles, but I'm good. That kind of stuff happens to those kind of people, not me. The point is that we desperately need, based on Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, we desperately need the constant corporate encouragement of fellow believers to avoid being driven to disillusionment and despair and our struggle against sin. Hebrews chapter 12, just jump over a couple pages. Interesting here, I love this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance of sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is talking about our sanctification here. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised him the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You will not be disillusioned or in despair. And notice verse 4, and you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I mean, to me, that's the best definition of sanctification. Sanctification is all about striving against sin. fighting against your flesh, mortifying the deeds of your flesh. This is the, the process. We talk about sanctification. It's the process by which we seek to put to death the sin that remains in our lives and, and keep our hearts from becoming hardened by the, deceit, by the deceitfulness of sin. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, encouraging... Just that word encouraging, that's not the first time that the writer mentioned that word encouraging. In fact, he mentioned it first back in Hebrews chapter 3. Notice this very quickly. Maybe we'll just wrap up after this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren. In other words, be careful. Watch out. This is a warning passage that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another, there it is, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Guess what? Every one of us is susceptible to having our hearts hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In fact, I think it happens every week from Sunday afternoon (laughs) to Saturday night. There's a slow hardening process that just naturally takes place in our hearts during the week. And so we need to come back to church. Why? To be encouraged so that none of our hearts will ultimately harden over Get hardened over by the deceitfulness of sin because sin is sneaky. Sin is deceitful. It tricks us. It deceives us. And so we need to encourage one another. I love how Paul Tripp In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. This is a great book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to to get it. It's the title is People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. Isn't that good? Guess what? I'm a pastor in need of change. I need to change. I need to grow. And God's put me in a position where I'm trying to help you grow and change too. And guess what? You're not above helping me grow and change, even though you need to change and grow. You can still be used by God to help me grow and change. But there's a section here where he describes this subtle progression of sin, and he's really explaining and applying Hebrews chapter three, this idea of needing to be encouraged so that our hearts are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says this, sinful, unbelieving, turning away hardened hearts. What a terrifying progression. He says, this explains why we need the daily ministry of fellow believers. Not just just every Sunday, not just a weekly ministry of fellow believers, but a daily ministry of fellow believers. The writer of Hebrews directs us to the doctrine of indwelling sin. On the cross and in the resurrection, Christ broke the power of sin over us but the presence of sin remains. Sin is being eradicated within us, and this process will continue until we're sin-free. But while sin remains, we must remember that sin is deceitful. Sin blinds, and guess who gets blinded first? (laughs) Me, or you. He says, I have no trouble seeing the sins of my family, but I can be astonished when mine are pointed out. Christ captures this truth with his word picture in Matthew 7. He says we can see a speck of dust in our neighbor's eye, but we're oblivious to a huge piece of lumber sticking out of our own. Since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we will have pockets of spiritual blindness. You understand the concept of blind spot? You're driving down the road, looking around, checking all your mirrors, all of a sudden, you make a lane change, and you're, uh, uh, and you failed to turn around and look in your what, blind spot or over here, your blind spot. There's certain places you just can't see. The same of our Christian life, we're driving down the road, and and we can see most everything, but there's certain things we just can't see, and we need other people to go, uh, uh, <laughs> and and point those things out to us. He goes on, he says, the reality of spiritual blindness has important implications for the Christian community. The Hebrews passage clearly teaches, clearly teaches that personal insight is the product of community. I need you in order to really see and know myself. Otherwise, I will listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. My self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror, kind of the funhouse mirror. If I'm going to see myself clearly, I need you to hold the mirror of God's word in front of me. He says there are no haves and have-nots here. There's no group that has arrived spiritually and therefore can provide all the ministry to a group of strugglers. This passage, he said everybody ministers and everybody needs ministry. It's not like, hey guys, I've arrived and... uh, Maybe someday you'll get where I'm at. That's not what this is talking about. He says, it warns us to admit our need for help and to become God's helpers. I need to wake up in the morning and say, quote, God, I am a person in desperate need of help. Please send helpers my way and give me the humility to receive the help you've provided and I need to pray further, Lord, make me willing to help someone see himself as, as you see him today. And so he concludes, he just says this, as Christians who still have pockets of spiritual blindness, we need two character qualities. First, we need the loving courage of honesty. We need to love others more than we love ourselves. And so with humble, patient love, help them see what they need to see. In other words, speaking the truth in love that takes courage. That takes honesty. And if you truly love someone, you'll tell them they got a booger in their nose, right? It's the people that don't love them like, okay, that's awkward. <laughs> if you really love that person, right? That's the whole point. We love ourselves. We don't want to be, we don't want to feel awkward. We love ourselves so much, I'm not going to put myself because I love myself and I worship myself, I'm not going to put myself in an awkward situation, so I'm just going to ignore it. No. You need to love others more than you love yourself, and you point these things out lovingly and patiently. Second, you need the thankful humility of approachability. I love that. The thankful humility of approachability. We need to forsake defensiveness, be thankful that God has surrounded us with help, and be ready to receive it every day. Loving courage of honesty, thankful humility of approachability. In other words, bottom line, we need to have honesty enough to speak the truth into people's lives. And we also have to be have the humility to receive that. It's a two way street. There's some people that are good at dishing it out. They can go around the church and point out everybody's sin, but then somebody comes and points out their sin and they get offended. Why? Because they're prideful, they're defensive. So we need to pray that God would be gracious to grant us that honesty and that humility as a church so that we can put into practice these verses. Well, you may be wondering practically, what does this look like? I mean, how do you stimulate someone to love and good deeds well how, how i mean what how can i really encourage I, i'm going to do the how do i do what's that look like well you'll have to come back next week because i don't want to keep you any longer you've got a sneak preview on the front of your uh, notes there i think at the end of the day what encouraging and stimulating and stirring one another up looks like practically in the life of a local church it's all the one another's of scripture all the one another's of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever seen a list of the one another's of Scripture, but there they are. And you can go to work on those this week, but come back next week and we'll explain what they are and, and how they should work in the life of our church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time we've had to spend in your word as your people. And uh, Lord, what a straightforward command this is for us to uh, encourage one another. And in order to do that, we've got to be here to do it. So, Lord, just renew our commitment to the essentials of the church. Help us to be uh, the church, to be who you've called us to be. Lord, and if anything, today we would just, just walk away realizing why we need the church and why the church needs us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, listen, um, if you are visiting with us today, again, thanks for being here. We want to invite you to go out to our welcome desk and uh, love to meet you personally out there. Drop off that card.